Um, I also became familiar work with your work when you had your conversation. I have to look at it. There you go. Now it's starting. Um, I became familiar with your work uh, during your conversations with Daniel Ingram. Okay. So maybe about a month ago or so. And your distinction between kind of you guys were hashing out um, ideas of magic versus the super mundane. Mm-hmm. But is the ideal form of the super mundane would be now is magic and now is magic and now is magic where the well now is now and magic is a word that we add to it for some reason or another like an unexplained phenomenon before it becomes a technology that people take for granted but this moment is such a mystery that with perception of it is like unfathomable in a sense. Okay. Um, in a way, though, we can say that it is a mystery, but that it's a mystery to be enjoyed, not a mystery to be confused by. Sure. Um, I guess I just. To be enjoyed is also just be um yeah and almost like rapturous in a sense. And that's where I feel like um you get the supra like sometimes I think of it like an octave. I grew up in a, a musical family, um so I'm just using that as in sort of a metaphorical sense, is that it still operates like a normal reality and it's like it's closer than you can describe it being, in a sense. If you were to describe it to someone who doesn't really know, it's like, it's too close to see. Uh, Human language is fairly good at naming objects. It is less good, but somewhat reliable in naming actions. Hmm. But it is completely inadequate in describing feelings. We don't have a language for feelings. Yes. I mean, we've got we've got the basic ones, like uh, fear, anger, disgust, um, grief, despair. And on the other hand, we have the others: safety, security, confidence, satisfaction. But those few words about 10 of them all together, five on each hand, is not a n- nearly enough to describe the full range of human emotions. And so what we as humans do is we um, revert to grandiosity. Mm-hmm. If we feel this, in order for someone to fully understand that we really feel all of this, we tell them we feel this much. Sure. Mm. And that um, that works with, uh, or it, it appears to work with the transmission of feelings. Mm. That, that just like we transmit information, we transmit feelings. 
this is the Pali word for it is mudita. And um, uh, we can see that in our in our language, such as misery loves company. All right. If you're angry, you want everybody to be angry around you. Mm. If you're angry at the bank, you want everybody to be angry at the bank. <clears throat> is is mudita a sympathetic joy? Uh, that's one of the uses for it. That's not the only use for it, and that's certainly not the right definition of it. It's more... Especially when it's backwards. Mm. In other words, what are you? Are you are you the broadcaster or are you the receiver? Well, I know which one I am. Because in in the uh, the first way that I was taught, the mundane way, is the Dhamma dude is looking at other people's joy in order to get a little bit of joy for himself. Mm. But that's not what the Buddha teaches at all. Yeah. He teaches that you got to go get it. You got to go make it. You got to go change your mind. You got to throw out unwholesome thoughts and put wholesome thoughts in the mind. And when one does that, then you have the joy that you now can spread to others if you've got it. Sure. I guess, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, <clears throat> that's one reason I felt like I wanted to test my understanding in a sense. Do you think people just pick up on the emotion of it and that's enough? Um, when you say people, we need to understand that there are uh, many different kinds of people depending upon the criteria. And mm -hmm. that everyone uh, is in uh, one state of mind or another so that they're not always in the same mind state or using the same functions all the time. So making generalities about people can be dangerous. Sure. Uh, we can talk about people with wrong views and people with right views and people with super mundane views. Or we can talk about it in the sense that some people um, don't think for themselves. They just remember what they were told to do and go about doing that. Sure. And and other people uh, don't even bother to think that much and just go by ever how they feel. Sure. And everyone does both of those things sometimes. Hmm. And then occasionally, occasionally, some people think straight. They think logically. They put things together. They um, investigate. They check it out for themselves. But most people don't do that most of the time. Yeah. Um, another way I think about it sometimes is like, so supreme gratitude in a sense is that good? um and like you almost just travel in an emotion and you you've you've tested out a lot of emotions in your life um so you've decided which one 
or which ones you want are worth maintaining and traveling in, in a sense. Well, you have that choice, don't you? But most people don't even know they have the choice. And most people are not interested um, in it because they've already got all they need. They've got the way they feel and they've got all the rules they've been told. And that's all you need to be a Republican. <laughs> Thinking for oneself is not only optional, it's downright <laughs> dangerous. <laughs> I was um, in a talk I was listening to earlier by, do you know Ajahn Sona on YouTube by chance? Um, I know a little of him, not much. I was listening to one of his. He's talks. younger, and so I haven't met him. You guys would have a great chat sometime. Maybe you guys should do a collaboration video of some sort. Anyway, like um, yeah, I'll leave we're talking you about um, um, the emergence of individual thinking out of tribal thinking um, around the time Buddha came around. Uh, I wouldn't use the word cyborg. Oh, sorry, I didn't say cyborg. It might have. Pardon. Um, I if if you heard cyborg, uh, you must have misheard me. Oh. Nothing about cyborgs. Oh, sorry. No. Sorry, that was just a bit of a tangent. <laughs> but. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, you had talked about uh, Achan Soma. Yes, yeah, Sona. Um, you mentioned his name. Yeah, he's from the Thai forest tradition, I think. I feel like there's been uh, quite an overlap in your view of things, but. Well, I don't know anything about him. Now I know Thai forest tradition, but Thailand is a big country and they've got lots of forest. Um, yeah, I believe it. <laughs> that um, actually just as kind of a side point, uh, people in the West think that the word Thai forest tradition means a specific small group of people, maybe around one teacher. But in Thailand, the Thai forest tradition is about half the watts. The other half are city watts. Mm. They have the, uh, the town watt tradition. And so when you hear the Taiwan tradition, you can just take the word uh, uh, forest and the word tradition out of it and just leave Thai. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Here's a question for you. Um, when you first heard the super mundane, did you, for a, a short period of time, hear it everywhere? It was like undeniable or feel it everywhere in a sense. It's like every story you intake, you you recognize it as the same thing. Uh, you're thinking of it in the sense that it was an event okay. rather than long drawn out process. Long life. I feel like 
it's a 15, long drawn out years. process, but then you know what you're aiming for. Pardon? It's a long drawn out process until you recognize what it was you're looking for. Uh, no, the long drawn out process is to remember to keep looking at what you're looking for. Sure. The process is, is that we, um, uh, we revert back to the easy way to do it. We revert back to, uh, unwholesome thoughts because we are in the habit of unwholesome thoughts. Sure. And because we're in the habit of unwholesome thoughts, if we're not mindful, we'll go back and do those unwholesome thoughts again. Mm. Um. Until eventually we have practiced long enough over a period of time so that the new habits build up kind of outweigh the old habits and that's when it gets a whole lot easier. Sure. But but the old habits uh they dwindle away, but it takes a while. If you're practicing correctly. But every time you're practicing correctly, you get rid of them right then and there. It's right now. Right now. It's sort of like the difference between uprooting a tree is the way that people would think of doing it wrong. And they've got a great big job to do. Got to grab that tree and pull it up. Got to need some axes, maybe a backhoe or something like that. And really, the easy way to do it is if you see a, a leaf on that tree, just pick off the leaf. Mm. And when all the leaves are picked off and all the new leaves are seen to be growing or picked off, then that tree is going to die. You don't have to dig it up, you just pull off the leaf. Another example of that would be imagine that you, um, let us say, on a sidewalk or out on the, uh, the, the road where you have concrete pavement and there's a weed growing up in the cracks. Now, getting rid of that weed completely is going to take a lot of work, it's going to take backhoes, you're going to have to raise, form new cement and all of that to guarantee that that uh, weed is gone. But there's an easy way to handle it. And that is, is to whack it off at the surface of the road and forget about it. And if that, weed, if that weed throws up another shoot sometime in the future, you whack that off too. Sure. And then if that weed shows up another, we whack that off. Well, pretty soon the roots don't have any energy that if it can't put those leaves out, then it won't gather up any energy and the weed will die. And you never had to pull it up by the root. Two strategies. Pardon? Two two strategies are available. Right. And the strategy of the Western Buddhist, the strategy of Western Buddhism is try to pull up the tree. And the Asian strategy, the correct system, the way that the Buddha teaches, is if this is a, uh, an unwholesome leaf, pick it off.
So that's a major point. That that's a major difference is uh, with the super mundane. Is, is that we deal with what needs to be dealt with right here, right now, without making a lot of plans for the future. Someday my enlightenment will come. All right. What we need to do is get ourselves into a state of satisfaction right now so that right now I can say, hey man, whatever enlightenment is, I don't need it. I've got enough right now. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, like fill my cup and let it overflow. <clears throat> well, I just have some familiarity with I also grew up in a church, so seeing some similarities or similes that are used throughout time can be interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so what's your next question? Mm. What'd you have for breakfast? <laughs> I haven't eaten. Okay. I think that about does it. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. Enjoy your videos. I really appreciate you taking the time to spread this to people um, freely. Okay. Well, tell me about your practice. It's happening. Um, <laughs> When I feel like doing a dedicated practice, uh, like a dedicated sit, um, I probably spend 20 or 30 minutes. But I, I mean, I really feel like my practice is constantly happening because um, just coming in to like an intense, uh, not intense, um, a clarified view of my emotional state and then the skill of bringing it to where I know it needs to be is is happening all the time. Um, so I guess it's kind of just a balance of trying to find good teachers online and applying those things. Uh, um, I I got a tattoo once and my it was just a, a shift. I used to think. I was introduced to meditating like early into college and thought it was more of like a, I need to be here at this certain time sort of thing, like sit down and like practice, practice. And then I gradually <laughs> came into the understanding that it's, you're meditating all the time, actually. Um, so I, I don't know. Well, Let's, uh, let's talk about a few things then. Um, first off, what Western people interested in Buddhism talk about when they talk about the word meditation is fairly similar to the kind of things that people would do when they're thinking about meditation either in or out of a Buddhist experience that meditation is kind of meditation. And because of that, we kind of have to let all of those people who know what the word meditation means kind of have that word. We'll sure. use something else. Uh, I would go so far as to say even that with, with Buddhism, that because Buddhism, the word Buddhism, has so much 
baggage with it and people have so much um, understanding of what the word means and that the Dhamma dudes that I know of don't fit that <laughs> at all. And so we'll have to let them have the word Buddhist also. So Buddhist yep. and meditation is not what we do here. No form. Yeah. Okay. And so everything about meditation that people know about meditation needs to be re-examined in the light of what the Buddha's actual teachings were. An example of that is most people, when they think of meditation, they think of a meditation hall with a particular kind of floor, maybe a particular atmosphere with lots of icons and maybe some candles and incense and cushions on the floor arranged in a certain way with a whole lot of people in there. Okay, and this is a meditation uh, class or a meditation retreat or a meditation hall or something like that. And that's certainly not anything like what the Buddha talked about. But that didn't exist in his time. What he said instead was go to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty hut. In all cases, what we're talking about is for the individual to go into seclusion. And the Buddha was very big on the word seclusion, and the word uh, is translated out of the Pali into the word seclusion uh, commonly. Uh, a lot of information about it. And yet, when people in the West practice meditation, they go and they join and gather together in something and don't go into seclusion. They're going into exactly the opposite, and yet the instructions are pretend like you're in seclusion. Mm. Okay. And so pretending like one is in seclusion has what uh, uh, meditation has become because it's kind of done in silence. Uh, but the whole idea of it is, is that we uh, need to get away from it all and get secluded uh, basically so that we can cool off the fires that we have been uh, maining and burned, ma burning and maintaining through our normal lifestyle. By doing so, then we can get secluded. We can begin to see what parts of that fire that I had to deal with in society is actually put my own pants on fire. So we have to then get away from it all. And that getting away from it all gives us a chance to recognize that, wait, wait a minute, I got away from it all physically, but I didn't get away from it all mentally. Now I have to get a new kind of seclusion. First, the seclusion, the reality of getting away from it all, and then the second seclusion of getting away from it all. And now we have a better definition of what we mean by getting away from it all. And that is unwholesome unwholesome thoughts. That's what we need to get away from is the unwholesome qualities. Now, here's the point about the meditation sitting in the on the floor or sitting in a cave or whatnot like that. Um, <clears throat> there are a few examples of people still doing that in the world. I know of one place in Burma where the the what, which was a really huge what had four people that would sit there all the time. One guy even slept sitting up 
Now, when I tell these kinds of stories and we hear uh, stories like uh, 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 Bodhidharma sitting in a cave for nine years and all of these kinds of stories, then I'll ask the student, is that the kind of life do you want to live? Do you want to go sit down on the floor in a meditation hall and stay there for the next nine years or the next 90 years? Or do you want to have a life? I'm sure you meet a lot of people who say they want one, but only do the other. Well, I'm not really sure what they were doing. They were just sitting there, so I didn't have a conversation with them. Sure. But the idea, correct me if I'm wrong, is that, you know, they're not actually in that cave, you know. They're, would they be considered in a deep jhana? Like I said, I don't know. And if they were, so what? Well, for them, it means everything. No, here's the problem with the jhanas that the Buddha found out about it, and he warns them a lot. This is, if there's anything, this is the major teaching of the Buddha. It happened with him before he became enlightened. It happened with Sariputta, and it happens with most Westerners who love the word jhana. They think that jhana itself is a value. Okay rather than seeing jhana as a vehicle or a tool to apply for something else. And that something else is often always missed. But in fact, if that jhana dude who was sitting on the floor actually got out of that jhana what he could get out of that jhana if he knew what he was doing, he wouldn't be sitting on the floor anymore. He would have gotten what he came there for. The fact is, he's still sitting on the floor because he hasn't gotten what he went in there for yet. Okay. So a middle way between being uh, in the everyday life and being in, ex in that extreme austerities. Right. We're looking for a middle path between the extreme, and you can call that austerities. Uh, the people who talk about jhana, people who talk about jhana will say that's not an austerity, but it certainly is an extreme. Yeah. Okay. And you know that the Buddha started off talking about the Eightfold Noble Path by introducing it with the uh, middle path. First, the middle path, and then the description of uh, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path. In this concept of the middle path, the question that Westerners have to figure out for themselves is, what are the two extremes that the Buddha is talking about? What are those two extremes? Do you know um, what they are? Um, aversion and attraction. No, aversion and attachment are exactly the same thing. An example of it is, is that I like this, I don't like that. If I like this, I want it. And if I don't like this, then I want to get rid of it. The wanting is still there. Yeah, okay, so the two extremes, the Buddha, I mean, 
Well, he was a prince, you know, lived a lavish um, life with... Um, That's where you're making the mistake. You're going right off into the mistake immediately. <laughs> All right, what? All right. Here's here's what the middle path is stated that people get confused about, and that is the statement is is that the middle path is the place between harming oneself for some advantage and trying to get some advantage by not harming oneself. These are the two extremes. Let me explain. Uh, the austerities. The Buddha practiced the austerities. He was with, uh, I, it, it appears, though it doesn't state it directly, there's indirect that he was with Naganataputta and was the very best they had. There's uh, uh, images of him being a starving, you know, the starving Buddha because he ate, ate so little. He was really into the austerities and they went as far as they could go with it to the point that he almost killed himself. And he recognized, how in the world can I come out of suffering if I can't even come out of the creek that I fell in? Right, right. Right? So that shows one side of the austerity. The other side of the austerity we have to look at from the perspective of who his audience was. Who his audience was were his friends that had been with him for a long period of time. That in fact, uh, there's every indication that several of them actually left the palace with him when he left the palace, especially mm. Kundana, who was the one who understood what the Buddha was uh, was teaching. The first sermon that he gave, Kundana understood what he had to say. So that meant that Kundana had been following him around the whole six years doing what he had been doing. So for most of the time, they were practicing meditations and jhanas and what like that. And then the last year or so, they were practicing these really weird austerities. The idea, by the way, of the austerities is, is that if you uh, have a lot of old bad karma that you still have coming to you, and you want to be free from the old bad karma, the way to do that is to hurt yourself now, to self-flagellate. Okay, this is the old way of thinking about it. I mean, Christians still do that. Oh, in, I was going to say, it's not even, it's still they, around. Mm -hmm. And the Buddha figured that out. Thank you, Buddha, for figuring that out, because we've all played with it, but no, nobody has ever gone to the level of it that he went to. And he figured out no matter how deep you go into it, it does not ever have the advantage of this action will destroy the results of old bad action. But in fact, if you think about it right, you can say that this new action is creating now a new result. And if my, my new action is self-flagellation, then the result is I'm getting flagellated right now. Mm. Never mind about the old stuff. That's ridiculous to think about that this, uh, this uh, harmful action that I'm taking right now is going to remove another older harmful action. But we do that in our society. In fact, I can give you a whole language about it. I'm sorry. <clears throat> oh, yeah. In the Thai language, they have the word katut. And it's a really funny word because the word tut is your butt. 
and the word co is to hit. So please beat my butt is the way that P that Thailand says, I'm sorry. So if you look at it like that, it means that, oh, you and I both have recognized I have done something wrong. In order to keep you from punishing me, I'm going to punish myself right in front of you so that you know that I have been punished sufficiently so that you don't have to. Okay, so now I'm punishing myself in a new way because of something happened that was old. And if I punish myself now, then I don't have to live out the results of my bad, my bad past behavior. So I'll do something to, to suffer now in order to avert having to suffer from something in the past. Were they this is the mentality. And you can see that it's stupid. <laughs> um. One thing I've been thinking about recently, um, so is Vipaka intention, is that correct? And then karma is the result of that intention? No, karma is the action. And Vipaka is what you, the result of that action? Um, to be honest with you, I've heard that poly word before but i don't actually remember i haven't seen it in a long time yeah well i don't know very much about it i either. do i do know that uh sama sankapa is part of the eightfold noble path and it has to do with um one's right attitude right thought right intention but ordinary vipaka, I'm I don't remember. Sorry about that. I make mistakes. I could very well be wrong too. So, um, um, but the but the idea is basically cause and effect. But people generally are stretching that out over way too long a time period. Now, like, any time over five seconds is way too long. It it's it's this. Um, like when the Buddha was asked about how long it takes to become enlightened and he gives the simile of a bird flying over a range of mountains with a, a piece of cloth, it'll take, have you heard that before? Actually, how long it takes to become enlightened is how long it takes for the bird to, to take off, take flight with or without a string in its mouth. Um, that, is that like a simile? Why? Because it's a timeless... Second before it's realm. on the ground, and now it's in the air. It took flight. That's enlightenment. It's light now. Right, but I feel is he trying to point out there moving into a realm that is timeless, getting people out of. Well, how can they talk about timelessness and get the point across when they're talking about a whole lot of time and more time and even more time than that? How can that become timeless? Because it's an overwhelming amount. It's to I can't wait seven million years for that. I have to have it now. Well, then don't go to that church who talks about seven million years. <laughs> exactly. I feel like that's what he was trying to point out, though. Well, this is the ordinary mind with Buddhism is making up stuff like that. And there has been, you see, in fact, even the Buddha was ordinary until he figured it out. 
and that everyone who came to him, including his first five students, were ordinary when they came to the Buddha. Everyone who comes to the Buddha comes in an ordinary state with a lot of magical thinking, and some people get fall in love with the Buddha so much that they put the Buddha's name on their magical thinking, and they write books. Sure. Okay. That's why there's so much magical thinking in Buddhism is because of all the magical thinking that people who came to Buddhism thinking that they were going to find some magic there, they left their magic instead. Mm. And this is one something that we're about to get into in talking about what is the middle path. Because most of the Westerners think that because they're using the word sensual pleasure, that they mean by that that the Buddhists talk about the dis distinction between self-flagellation and the brothel is the middle path. Okay. Okay. But these guys who were with the Buddha during those six years when he was uh, uh, practicing all of these things were not in the brothel, but they were doing the self-flagellation. So why would he come and talk to them about, hey, guys, you got to stay out of the brothel when they haven't been to a brothel in years? So he must have meant something else, right? Okay, so now I ask you a question to take us in the, in the direction then. What is the jhana dude doing sitting on the floor in the cave? If he is not pursuing what is he pursuing? Why is he sitting there? Uh, an enjoyable experience. Exactly. This is what we have to begin to understand about the eightfold, or excuse me, the middle path is a middle path of uh, spiritual practices. Not a middle path between spiritual practices and ordinary practices. It's a middle path between spiritual practices. Between jhana and self-flagellation. Okay. How can we find that place? Well, let's look at it like this. If someone is uh, practicing whatever meditation that they are practicing, and then when they stop practicing that meditation and they go back into unwholesome thoughts while they're in that state of unwholesome thoughts are they on the middle path no if they are having unwholesome thoughts are they not in fact either doing the the task of seeking sensual pleasure or trying to punish themselves for some wrongdoing that they've had in the past yeah, I would say that's what they are doing. Okay, so there you go back again to the second noble truth is wanting things we don't have or trying to get rid of things that we don't want to put up with. And it always has to do with the wanting. Okay, so this is where the Buddha comes in with the concept of the first jhana. This is the story of the rose apple tree. No doubt you've probably heard about the rose apple tree story. When he was uh, still a teenager, still living with his father, 
the, uh, his dad and all the priests and everybody were having a plowing ceremony uh, to opening the, the plowing season. They say it was plowing. I'm not kind of sure what kind of plows they had back then, or in fact, did they just plant rice in the paddy rather than plowing it up? I think that we had a Westerner doing a translation there using the word plowing. And I don't think they were doing any plowing, but it was a planting ceremony. And the uh, the young Siddhartha then uh, experienced the first jhana. So after he crawls out of the creek, recognizing he's nearly killed himself, he asks that question: Why am I afraid of the of the pleasures that come from the first jhana? Because these are not sensual pleasures. In other words, now he's beginning to make a distinction. So what it appears that the Buddha is really pointing at at this um, middle path is not a middle path between the brothel and the austerities, but it's a middle path that we can steer where the mind is free from wanting things and wanting to get rid of things or uh, self-flagellation versus desire. And that state would then be the cultivation of the first jhana. So people walking around joyful in the first jhana don't want anything. Everything is hunky-dory. That's the middle path. But a lot of people think that middle path is kind of living an ordinary life to where you go from, I don't like this, to I like that. You're always winning. Pardon? You're always winning. Yeah. Okay. So with this, I would like to introduce to you the concept of Anapanasati, which is not meditation. Anapanasati is what the Buddha taught, and according to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, and I can see the strong evidence where Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa would make this, though he was much more of a folly scholar than I would ever be. And he says that the Buddha only taught one kind of meditation, only one, and that was Anapanasati. And it is a complete meditation because it takes care of all of the issues especially the issues of the body, the feelings, the mind, and the mind objects, to where all the other meditation systems that have ever been come up are either, uh, it has only a few of the things that Anapanasati practice has, or it doesn't have any of them and is doing something completely different. Hmm. An example of that would be the Mahasi noting method is not Anapanasati. Why? Because people are noting. What are they noting? What are they told to note? You probably know enough to answer that question. I'm not super. Fam- I've heard of that method, but I'm not super familiar with it. And I've never practiced. It sounds like too much work for me. Well, what they are noting. Well, actually, Anapanasati is double the amount of work that. Uh, uh, Mahasi, then in fact, Mahasi is not even doing the work they need to do. What the Mahasi oh, method does is they note, and high. the question, Correct? pardon? Sorry, Sorry. Uh, is, this, is it because they're still generating unwholesome thoughts or 
Exactly. Precisely so. You got it. I give you a gold star for that one. Hey, <laughs> you, thank you got it. Exactly correct. What they are noting, then what they are instructed to note is whatever comes up. Right, and if garbage comes up, note it well and keep around. Pretty soon, you'll be completely surrounded by garbage because that's what you're noting. But one's right effort would be once you note that this is unwholesome, once you make the discrimination, now you have to take the effort to throw that thought out of the mind. <clears throat> a metaphor that came to me kind of early on was like a, a mind garden. I use that word a lot with students. That in fact, guarding is um, uh, a word that is... Um, uh, it's got good references. Guarding and gardening, gardening, like. Well, guarding would weeds. be, guarding would mean mean then to pull up weeds, mm. and gardening would also mean not only pulling up weeds but planting wholesome things. Yes. Okay, and what people do instead is they um, even know what. Because they're doing neither one of those gardening tools. All they're doing is, I guess, making an inventory. And because mm. they're not pulling any weeds, and because they're not planting any wholesome uh, products, all they get is a garden of weeds. But they're noting it well. <laughs> <laughs> and when that when that weed garden gets completely full of weeds, then you have what they call uh in the in there is a a, a set of literature that is sitting around a, a group things called the 16 stages of insight they come out of the Vasudhi Maga and Mahasi himself was quite big on these 16 stages of insight and step six seven eight nine and ten have to do with fear misery um disgust despair, a great desire and longing to get out of that, followed then by a redoubling of the effort. Okay, and that this will happen to meditators many years in. Sometimes people have been practicing 10 or 15, sometimes 20 years before they get into this stage of meditation. And basically, what when they finally make the uh, the strong determination to redouble their effort, that's when they actually begin for the first time to practice correctly. Mm. And they have been practicing wrong all of these many years because they have been noting without doing something about it. That the real practice of uh, Anapanasati is to change the mind. To gladden the mind. In fact, that's the word that's used in the Anapanasati Sutta or the translation. But a better word, I think, would be brightening the mind. Sure. To brighten it, to gladden it up, to make it uh, uh, function in this present moment rather than having it tied to the unwholesome thoughts, which are almost always associated with the past or the future. Or Things that may be happening now, but they're happening someplace else. 
But when we bring our thoughts right here to this point here now, those thoughts are normally kind of wholesome. Why? Because we're talking about something that's real. The past is not real. It's gone. Doesn't exist. Right. Future, not real, doesn't exist. And when it comes, it will almost be unrecognizable because humans are not very good at predicting the future. But you believe that. Okay. But most people spend their time restlessly mucking up the past, trying to figure out uh, solutions to problems they still have, and that they also, in our society, we have critical systems uh, of thought. An example of that would be the city grew up because one more person and one more person, one more person said, this city is incomplete. It needs yet another building with my name on it. Okay. And so where did the city come from? It came from a village that wasn't good enough. The village wasn't good enough. It needed to become a city. Hmm. The village, when it was there, was also the product of um, let us say a house and one house wasn't big enough. Let's build two. Now let's build a village. Everything is always in the idea of improvement, trying to make things better. And we're not always very good at that. So the attempts of making things better sometimes have the opposite effect. An example of that is war. Sure. But that's not the only example cutting corners on the way that concrete is poured is also one of the ways that people trying to take advantage or making things better when in fact they don't. So here's this whole system of trying to make things better and that we are taught that way from uh, from childhood. Now, when we're really little kids, when we're three and four and five or, or little kids, the kids are able to play. Everything is a toy. Little lion cubs play with other lion cubs, and they learn how to be really big lions that way. So our toys that we play with uh, are kind of a training ground for reality, but we still have the attitude of playing with it. But something yeah. happens to humans. It's called education. And we're told to put down your toys, stop doing what you want to do, stop playing with the toys you want to play with, and do what you're told to do. Learn your ABCs, learn your one, two, threes, shut up, stop crying, clean your room. And so we get into this thinking mode as a child that we will call now critical thinking, the same very kind of thinking that built a city is what children are trained to do. I've got a little poem for you, Damarato. Huh? I've got a it's I've got a poem for you. A poem? Yes. It, it's an original. It okay. Mm -hmm. It's better than you think. It's better than you think. <laughs> okay. How about it's not what you think? 
<laughs> ah, in any case, we're looking at what the mind does is called critical thinking. We're trained for critical thinking, except that the mistake that each individual makes is they turn their critical thinking machine onto themselves and start criticizing themselves. Just like they've tried to make the city better or making automobiles better, the automobile uh, engineer, in order to make the cars better, as his drawings better, he's got to beat himself up mentally. All right, so this, this is the critical thinking that we're talking about that's quite natural. But within the context of the teachings of the Buddha, critical thinking is, un is unwholesome. Basically, you too far in one direction. It's actually going just facing in that direction. You don't have to even take the first step. It's just facing in that direction. Here's what we mean by that. Critical thinking means that we're deciding what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad. It's a judgmental mind. Yeah. And we become judgmental. This is, in fact, the entire story of Adam and Eve. If you take away all of the story parts of it and, and look at the moral of it, the actual issue is not about talking steaks, not about apples, not about the girl did it to the boy, none of that kind of crap. Really what's going on is, is that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, what do we mean by eating of the fruit? It means they had to put up with the results. That if you eat something, you're going to have to put up with the fact that you ate it. If it was a, a, a bad apple, then you got to deal with the fact you've eaten a bad apple. All right. So in that regard, any action that you do will have a reaction to it. And in this case, the actions that they took was judging things good or bad. The knowledge of good and evil means that I'm here in paradise, and paradise is paradise. It's a wonderful paradise, except for this tree here has got a yellow leaf on it. This is not paradise, folks. This is a yellow <laughs> leaf on a tree in paradise. We've got it. <laughs> <laughs> and you see where that goes. And the next thing you know, there's no trees left in my paradise because I cut them all down because I was judgmental about yellow leaves. Another thing that I think is interesting about that story, and I'm not a biblical scholar by any means, but it always struck me as interesting that God left an angel with a flaming sword to guard the Garden of Eden. And... Not that I get like super into symbols or whatever, but I think it's interesting how those things start to permeate culture. Anyway, a flaming sword. I feel like the sword is oftentimes um, a simile for the cutting mind or the dividing mind. Not sure about that. I don't even know about the angel with the sword that's uh, guarding paradise. Um, uh... We certainly don't have anybody in Thai people carrying swords around here in this paradise. <laughs> I thought I it guess was the, a metaphor. And... Mm -hmm. Well, here's what we're looking at then is the whole idea of the judge, judging mind destroys paradise. Well, guess what? 
you could have a paradise between your ears. But we don't because we go around criticizing it. Mm. We're critical. Do this, do that, and we make up a set of rules. In fact, we don't even make up the set of rules. We are given that set of rules wholesale. Day after day after day by the adults in our lives when we're kids. And so we pick up all of the rules. We pick up all of the ways that things should be done. And then we go around living our lives according to that set of rules. Making ourselves miserable because a lot of the rules are contradictory. I see what you are saying um, about even facing in that direction. I had said earlier it was too far in one direction, but you had said um, mm-hmm. even facing that direction. Um, and that's what I, is that what the Buddha is talking about and being non-polarized completely, completely ignoring if it was this way or this way. It's you're removed from that situation completely. Mm-hmm. Mm. So. What we mean then by that is by the polarization are actually uh, ways of looking at things critically. The polarizations is this is good, this is bad, and that comes from that judgmental mind that throws Adam and Eve and every one of us out of our own paradise. We're critical, and that critical mind destroys everything. I mean, it really, if you think about it, look what critical mind did to the island of Manhattan. Look what the critical mind did to the island of Hong Kong. Look what the critical mind did to the island of Singapore. Look at us right now. It's, it's saying we're different. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. And so that judgmental mind, some people will think it's an improvement, but... The question is, is that even with all the technology that humans have now, why do we still feel bad? I mean, we still feel bad the way that we did when we didn't even know how to plant rice. It's almost there. It's coming. It's just around the bend. We're Mm -hmm. almost going to make it. Except that what happened is, is that the humans, in order to build our technology, became more and more and more critical. Which means, in by and large, the humans themselves have become more and more and more unhappy in this marvelous technological paradise that they've made for themselves. And they're still unhappy. Hmm. Now, here's an idea of where all of that stuff came from. And that is, is that way, way back when, I can see one of two possibilities. One is either there was a, uh, because of a fire due to lightning or whatever, some primitive human picked up a stick that was burning on the other end of it. And he said, this stick is mine. The other possibility was is that this same dude was um, uh, kneeling over a carcass that the lions and the jackals had just finished with, with hardly a scrap of meat left on it, but a lot of marrow in the bone. And so he's taking the stone and he's breaking these bones up to get the marrow out of it. And he looks at this stone and says, this is a good stone. I'm going to keep it. Okay. Now we know that otters, for instance, will take shells off the floor of the ocean um, and um, off the reef or whatever, and a stone float up to the surface, lay on his back, 
and take that stone and pound the um, the oyster. But what does he do with that stone when he gets the oyster open? He lets it go. And it falls back into the water. That's the difference between the otters and the humans, is the humans want to keep their tools. Hmm. Right? We keep our tools. So, yesterday's rock that we opened, Merrill, is today's cell phone. And we keep it because we think that it's convenient and easy to use. And yet, look how much trouble that rock was for that guy to carry around. Sure, sure. But it's also enabling us to have this conversation, in a sense. I'm sorry, what? It, yeah, sorry, continue. Okay, all right. What we're really looking at now is the whole quality of the critical thinking. And that we have to put that kind of thought aside and start thinking in more wholesome ways. Now, if we have uh, the critical mind actually is the second noble truth itself. Wanting things to improve things means we're wanting things that we don't have or that what we do have now is not good enough. You're like, in a lab, I don't like it. Well, if you know the second noble truth at all, the second noble truth is what? Greed, ill will, and delusion. Critical thinking is greed and ill will as a concept. And is delusional thinking. So critical thinking is, in fact, the second noble truth, the cause of suffering. We create suffering or unhappiness for ourselves because we go around liking and not liking and making judgments about things. And so when we sit down in seclusion, in what they call meditation, then that habit is rolling right on, and then they say, oh, well, no, whatever's going on, well, this is what's going on, is this critical mind. And we have to be able to see the critical mind only enough to recognize that this is a critical mind, and then change it. So, we're looking at now the Eightfold Noble Path, most specifically. I've actually been uh, uh, planning on bringing this in. We have the right view is, is that we can tell what is a critical thought and what is a nurturing thought. We have sati to remember to take a look at what's going on in the mind. If we can remember to look, then we can do an investigation. If we do a discerning investigation to find out that the kind of thought that I have right now is critical, then I can change that critical thought into a nurturing thought if I have the right effort to do it. And right effort is required. It's on the path. The Buddha makes a point of it. For the beginner, it's quite a lot of effort to change the way that we're thinking in this particular moment. <clears throat> is, and so the way that we do it to make it easier is to recognize that we're being hard on ourselves, we're being critical, when we could be easy instead. This is the, the whole idea about nurturing. You see, when a mother gives birth to a new baby, that tender infant is nurtured. 
it's fed, it's diapered, it's cleaned, it's bathed, and everything is hunky-dory. And even when that child does his first poopy, mom is pleased. It takes a couple of days. It's often a really, really big one. It's only a little bit yellow. I know all about baby turds. All right. And moms are really proud of them. It shows that, that the child is operated correctly. But later... <laughs> When that kid is 16 years old, if he presents a, uh, a, a great big turd on the floor, uh, on the carpet in the front room, guess what? He is not going to get nurtured for that new egg he laid. Things have changed now, right? We have, we have decided we're no longer going to treat that child in a nurturing way. We're going to treat that child in a critical way. And guess what? The child does two things. One is he makes the change also from nurturing himself into criticizing himself. And number two, he doesn't like making that change. But we do it anyway. We do it because it's required of our culture. Now, that you're practicing Anapanasati, it's time to start looking at all of that stuff and recognizing that you do not have to, in fact, be critical of yourself right here, right now. That, in fact, you can be nurturing to yourself instead, right here, right now. That's what we're starting to go with, okay, is to nurture ourselves, to give ourselves happy thoughts, to give ourselves wholesome thoughts, to give ourselves uh, a mind that's gladdened, that we're gladdening them up, is brightening the mind by saying things like, wow, I'm glad I don't have to think about those critical thoughts anymore. Or everything's going to be all right. Everything's fine. Everything is easy. No place to go, nothing to do. These are wholesome, uh, nurturing thoughts. But we don't give our, ourselves those kind of thoughts. We have work to do. We have emails to write. We have um, uh, people to please, jobs to do. We have a, a critical world to live in, and we live in that world critically, which means we're critical of ourselves. And it's time that we stop that and start nurturing instead. So allow yourself, in fact, that all of the work that you have been doing with all of this critical stuff, you never really were correctly um, uh, paid back for it. Uh, you haven't been really rewarded yet. Uh, that in fact, uh, the Buddha talks about um, the woeful states and one of the woeful states is the animal state. And what is an animal? A draft animal is an animal that is put to work, but does not get the benefit of his labor. An example of that, in fact, uh, one that I remember in India, very, very important one. I mean, this really got me. Here's this donkey that's got a big, long pole. Uh, that there's a tree, a thin tree about this big around, strapped to his back, and the other end of it is stuck into a stone, and this donkey has to go in around and around and around in about a 30-foot circle, and that uh, limb forces that stone to get turned with him and it's sitting on another stone and there the guy who owns the donkey or thinks he owns the donkey is putting sugarcane stalks into this mill and out 
pours sugarcane juice and he sells it for 10 rupees a glass, warm sugarcane juice, and he sells it. Guess what? How much of that sugarcane juice does the donkey get? <laughs> None. None. At best, the hope uh, that the donkey's ever going to get is maybe some sugarcane stalks after they're depleted. Mm -hmm. Well, we live our lives like that. We grind other people's stalks and they drink the sugarcane juice. And that's our whole society. Marx knew all about it and was very unhappy about things. Karl Marx could recognize that the bosses treat their workers like dumb animals, force them into labor, get the fruits of that labor, and the workers are left with a bad life, poverty, where the rich get richer, the poor get poor, and our whole society is built upon that, except for one thing, and that is, is that the rich don't really consider themselves all of that rich or wealthy. They need more. That they're stuck in the same mill as the ordinary workers. Right, because they've trapped themselves even more in here. Mm -hmm. Precisely. And so the whole idea is, is that can we get out of that doing what we're told to do with the hope of a reward and start giving ourselves the rewards that we have been promised and never given with all the work that we've done and have those rewards anytime we want them right now? Yeah. To start rewarding yourself for all the good deeds that you have been done, doing your whole life that you never got a reward for. Just to allow yourself, everything is okay right now. I don't have to go anywhere or do anything, that everything that needed to be done has been done, and I can relax. And so these are the kind of wholesome thoughts that we want to start giving ourselves. Can you reinforce that idea um, with the realization that I'm not even doing this? You're... Actually, another way of thinking about that is, is that whoever you are in this particular moment is not the who you were 10 minutes ago, that things are constantly changing. Yes. And that you're not fixed. A lot of people have been told as part of their critical thinking that they are a fixed object. They are permanent. They have a soul. Right. But by recognizing impermanence, it greatly reduces having to remember to give yourself that thing. Um, well, people who have a permanent soul have been lied to. They've been told that, um, for instance, only God is good. Who, who are you to think that you're good? You've, you've got original sin, remember? Adam and Eve started making those judgments way back when, and you're stuck with them now. You can't change your own mind. Right. Okay, but that's the whole foundation of religion is is that we've got you. We've got a we've got a little story here that traps you completely in that story. Everything's a story. 
everything's a story and you're trapped into it. Why is that trapped? Is because they're they're trying to convince you that you can't get out of it by yourself. You need their God's help. And they will get their God to help you if you pay them. Or something close to that. Something even more sophisticated than that. But that's basically how it goes. Right. Is that your sin's original. And you can't get out of it. And the Buddha says, hey man, that's what we've figured out. That the sin was original, but it was original only. Hello. Oh, you're back. Good. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. So in in the practice of Anapanasati, the important thing is to look at the kind of thoughts that we're having and make a determination or the um, uh, kind of an evaluation to see, is this thought wholesome or not? And the easy way to say is, is that, is this thought about the past? Is it a thought about things that need to be done in the future? Is it thought about problems that need to be solved? Is it thoughts about other people that are not here? Those are the kind of thoughts that we're going to say, um, because our discrimination is not really good. Basically, right view, right sati, right effort, and right attitude are skills to be developed. And the way that we develop right uh, view is by continuing to make that evaluation, to keep doing it, to keep looking it. And so in the beginning, we make sure that we know what is the right thought is a right thought or a wholesome thought. And then later, as the student gets uh, some practice in, he begins to figure out for himself what is wholesome and what is not wholesome, knowing that as thing as time goes by, more and more thoughts that used to be thought as of wholesome now become unwholesome and fewer and fewer and fewer thoughts are left as actually wholesome. And so we can begin to put uh, that into the context by recognizing that any thoughts about the past, any thoughts about the future, any thoughts about someplace else, not here, would then be considered unwholesome thoughts. But thoughts about the Dhamma, thoughts about practicing the Dhamma and applying the Dhamma right here, right now is very wholesome. So, in fact, when we are investigating to investigate, this is investigation. I'm investigating investigation. I'm investigating right view. I'm investigating sati. How's my sati? How's my right effort? These are the things that are really worth investigating, but we wind up investigating the unwholesome only to see that it's unwholesome. 
so that we can throw those things out and come back to the present moment, gladdening the mind, making it joyful, making it cheerful, saying, well, I don't have to do that anymore. No place to go and nothing to do and everything is easy peasy. Um, and start cashing in on some of the rewards that you have been not able to cash in on before. Yeah. Because the job wasn't done yet. Well, now the job is done. Think of it as the job has been finished. Absolutely. Um, I feel like maybe when some people might hear you say, Tati consists of these components, they might be confused and think it's a mental thing that's taking place. But over time, does it develop into a um, a close or subtle awareness of your emotional state and that it is, you know what needs to be done almost automatically in terms of healing this emotional state that you use all your effort to maintain? Well, um, a better way of talking about it is this, that with the breathing, if you can, can learn to control the breathing by doing so, you also learn to control the mind. And by learning to control the mind and learning to control the breathing, now we have the skills we need to learn to control the feelings. That's the way that we do. We first start off with controlling the breath by taking long, deep in-breaths. A lot of meditation practices think that, oh, you have to just watch the breath. Well, if you just watch the breath, then that means you've got no skin in the game. You're not doing anything. And the mind is just likely to just wander right away. But if you're actually doing something, if you're actually intending to control the breath, then uh, in order to control the breath, you've got to control the mind. The mind is controlling the breath. By controlling the breath, you're controlling the mind. The next point on that is, is that your whole life, every one of us, our whole lives, we've been talking ourselves into feeling bad. That's not good enough. This is not good enough. Do what you're told to do. Blah, blah, blah. You know, the whole nine yards. We've been talking ourselves into feeling bad our whole lives. Now is the time to talk yourself into feeling good. This is where sukha and pity come from. They come from the fact that you can gladden the mind. You can change the mind. If you're practicing uh, uh, noting or choiceless awareness, then you do not have the mind that's pure enough to experience wholesome thoughts in order to give yourself wholesome feelings. And so choiceless awareness means that I'm not making any choices about how bad I feel. Because you haven't investigated closely enough that it feels better to have, it's better to have wholesome thoughts. Exactly. And they never got that. Okay. No teacher had ever told them that they have a choice about what kind of thoughts they're going to have. And so many meditators, if they do figure it out, take some 20, 30 years to figure it out because they weren't told the first time. It's almost like, oh, if you're going to learn to ride the bicycle, the very first thing that you have to do is put the wheels on. You're not going to get anywhere on your bicycle if you don't put the wheels on it. And so 
that's that's what we're missing. We're missing some of the uh, detailed key points of the practice that need to be given right from the very beginning to actually what is right effort? What is right sati? What is mindfulness? Because <clears throat> the Buddha makes a big distinction between right view and right sati. And with right view and right sati, right effort, they run and circle around each other so that they improve each other. It's almost like a positive feedback loop. But in Western meditation, they talk about mindfulness this and mindfulness that and miss the point. Oh, yeah. I think concentration is really heavily emphasized, but on yes. not much. Concentration on what? Concentration for concentration, because they like the critical mind. They want to keep going critical, critical. That's what I think. At least I don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what I actually do think. <laughs> well, um, that's true. Let's talk about that just for a short time, and we'll talk about it later. The word concentration, I do not know how that got uh, put into the practice of uh, Anapanasati at all. Uh, that it really wasn't a part of the original meditation. I think that, in fact, the problem is a bad translation of the Pali word samati. The word samati actually means, and it is described in the suttas to mean, so that there's no doubt about it, is, is that it means gathering together the factors. Um, can I give you a, how I picture this for myself, for concentration? Okay. Instead of, uh, I think of it as, like, if you have a magnifying glass in sunlight, all you're doing is adjusting the magnifying glass so it hits the the concentrated point. You're not the person supplying the sunlight. Okay. And basically, all what you're intending to do then is to set a, a piece of paper on fire with the magnifying glass, right? That whole thing is ordinary thought. Okay. And when you are holding that magnifying glass and adjusting it exactly correct, your favorite enemy has just snuck up on you and slit your throat. Because <laughs> you were not paying attention. You were concentrated instead. Here's an example of that. Frozen concentrated orange juice. They concentrate orange juice for transportation purposes. They take the water out of it. Because, I mean, water is water. But who drinks frozen concentrated orange juice? Who drinks it? Well, you can't drink it. You can't well. drink it. It's not drinkable. It's concentrated. What we have to do is make it samati again. We have to make it whole again by putting the water back into it. In this example, concentration and samati are exactly opposites. And people who think of meditation as concentration and going deep are not practicing anapanasati at all. They're going in the opposite direction of anapanasati. Anapanasati is to wake up, to be here now, to open your senses so that 
your favorite dark horse ninja cannot sneak up on you. You know he's coming. You're paying attention. You're awake. You're not concentrated. Clear example of that. The guy sitting at home uh, because of COVID, working at, uh, at home on his laptop, let us say writing code. And his dad comes into the room and says something. But the guy is concentrated and he doesn't pay any attention to his dad. Right? That's concentration. If this guy was Samati, then as soon as the dad came into the room, he said, hi, dad. I know you're here. I give you acknowledgement. I know you're here. And then I can come back and continue the code or I can pay attention to dad. I've got a free choice now to make. I am not stuck on my concentration. Sure. It's it's not a. It, it's not super deep. It's always scanning. Not the effort it's of be scanning, here now. It literally is be here now and concentration is to be lost in space. And so we, we're not practicing concentration, we're practicing samadhi. Let me give you the example. You obviously know what an American teepee is. Okay, it's made similar to a yurt. In the suttas, they actually talk about a yurt. A okay. yurt is the tent that has a center pole that has other poles around it. And a teepee is where all the poles reach together. All of those poles touch each other and are tied together at the top. That is the samati point where all the poles touch each other. And then they have a, a stable structure is because each pole is um, dependent upon all of the other poles because they're working together as a unit. And for that reason, you have strong stability, hmm. which means then that if you have all of the first jhana factors collected together, then together they build a strong structure. But if any of the parts are missing, then that particular area is going to be weak so that the brain can blow it over. Sure. Okay, this is what we mean by samadhi is samadhi is when you've got all the ingredients put together that make the whole thing. An example of that would be if you wanted to concentrate a grandfather clock, you know, the old grandfather clocks with the pendulum that goes back and forth. If you're going to concentrate that clock, you're going to take a sledgehammer to it. And make it as small as you can beat all of those things together. But a Samati clock is one that is put together correctly. So that the gears are operating correctly and they're operating and functioning in harmony with each other so that you bring about the desired results. This is Samati. How can that word Samati be translated into the English language concentration? I don't have a clue. Are you saying Samadhi? Samati, right. Area Sama Samati. Um, it's Part a of the eightfold no that path. is never broken. Pardon? A concentration that is never broken. It's not a concentration, and it is certainly intermittent. 
But when it's together, it's strong. And the job for the individual is to keep bringing it back together and bringing it back together and bringing it back together until they get pretty good at bringing things together. And while they're bringing things together, they want it to stay together a little bit. And so we have two jobs to do, uh, or two skills to be developed that are overarching skills. And then there are small detail skills that bring those overarching skills about. The two overarching skills is one is to get yourself into a really pleasant Okay, so like I was saying, the two skills are one to quickly, easily, happily get into a really good state. And then the second skill is to maintain that state. These are the two skills that the Buddha talks about in conjunction with the first jhana. Actually, there's a third skill, but we'll talk about that later. So right now, the skills that we're looking at is to get yourself into a really good, happy state by practicing Anapanasati with the waking up, checking out this thought, seeing is it wholesome or not. And if it's unwholesome, throw it out and replace it with wholesome thoughts. In the beginning, you will almost always see that it's an unwholesome thought that needs to be changed to a wholesome, but pretty soon you'll begin to have a, a Sati wake up investigate and say, wow, things are really great. <laughs> everything's okay. Everything's hunky-dory. Now this everything's is perfect, right? Nothing is perfect. Why isn't everything Not perfect? Because, well, what is perfection? You describe it yourself, don't you? Well, Here's something interesting about perfection is, is that if, if something is perfection and uh, that means that it cannot be improved upon, which means that it cannot evolve. If he evolves at all, that's not an improvement, that's a deterioration. So by the very nature of understanding in Nietzsche, we begin to understand nothing can be perfect because perfect is like static. An example of that is the difference between a photograph and a movie. Life is a movie. It's not a photograph. Perfection is a photograph. Once it's set, there it is. It doesn't change. So perfection is something that only gods and souls and things like that can deal with in a magical world. Hmm. Perfection does not exist in the real world, because everything is subject to change. But understanding that, doesn't that just become the new definition? 
Well, let us say it this way, knowing that your definition now of a word is different than other people's definition, why don't you give them their word and let them fair, have it? Fair, fair enough, fair enough. <clears throat> That's their word. We can find a new word. Like, this is it. <laughs> Much better. I mean. <laughs> we don't have to deal with perfections. That this is good enough. This is it. That in fact, if you're seeking the perfect, you will always be unhappy. And if you're seeking the perfect, you're doing it with a critical mind. If you do accept that everything is already okay, it doesn't matter whether it's perfect or not. I like it. It's good enough. That's something that we can actually practice. Mm. Perfection is going to make you miserable. Good enough is good enough. Mm. So, uh, we have talked about the certain aspects of the Eightfold Noble Path, especially right view, which is actually an investigation. And it's a moving investigation. It's sort of more like a video camera than it is a, a, a still camera or photo uh, camera sitting on a tripod. In other words, we've got to move it around. We've got to see everybody's points of view. You've got to really look at things from many different viewpoints. This is one's right view. It is a moving target, or actually it's a moving, <laughs> I guess, camera. <laughs> and right sati means that we have to remember to use the camera. We have to remember to do the investigation. We have to remember to look. Once we see what is there, now we have to, a choice to make, and that choice then is going to take effort to make a change. Once we keep doing that over and over and over and over again, we get pretty good at it. And as we get good at it over and over and over again, we begin to develop the attitude, I can do this. Look, I've done it that time, I did it this time, I got it here, I got it there, I can do this. And eventually, then we get to the point of saying it doesn't matter how messed up the mind is. It doesn't matter how much hindrance it is or how obstructed it gets. I can right now remember to clean it out and to come back to this present moment and to see things the way they really are. Mm. That is one's right effort. Or excuse me, one's right uh, sama sankapa, one's right attitude. Now, that attitude also. The courage, right? Well, it's not courage, it's confidence. Confidence. Hmm. Confidence. It is, I can do this. It's a winner's attitude. This is what we mean by the word pity, that in the uh, most Western people, they think that it has to do with bodily sensations. But that's just a description of it. That really what pity is, is that it's a feeling or an attitude of uh, exuberance. It's an attitude of success. Um, here's an example. When the football star uh, makes a touchdown at the big game, what does he do for the next 10 or 20 seconds? Celebrates for a bit. All right. And what does that celebration look like? <laughs> I mean, a range of things. How about arms going up and pumping in the air? 
Sure, sure. How about uh, his teammates jumping up and down and sometimes jumping into a body pile? Yep, I've seen that. Okay, how about people in the stands also stand and cheer and throw their arms in the air? Yeah. Okay, and what are they exhibiting when they do that kind of behavior? They're exhibiting the thrill of success. Right. That's pity. That's it, right there. Except that, in your case, you do not have to hire a big stadium, fill it with 100,000 people, buy a whole bunch of footballs and a whole, and put, put jerseys on people and all of that kind of stuff. All you have to do is sit down and close your eyes, put yourself into a good state, and feel that way, free of charge. It, and you, do you learn... Uh... It's like refining your fuel, almost, in a sense. Um, that took a lot of effort to put on a whole football game and to do all that stuff like you described and have a whole stadium just so you could enter that emotional state of extreme success. But the idea would be to practice to continually, continually make whatever is required to feel like that until it's completely self-generated. And you can feel the way you want to free of charge. Mm. And you do not have to enter the Olympics and win the 100-yard dash to get your own gold medal. In fact, the number of people who have actually entered the uh, Olympics, run the 100-yard dash, and gotten a gold medal, that's a huge number of people since they've been doing the Olympics. What, thousands and thousands and thousands of people have gold medals, and they feel like that because of the gold medals. How many meditators feel that way? I'm not certain. I don't talk to too many. Not many of them, in fact, because they're not practicing correctly. Mm. Not many, which means those that meditators who do feel that way are very few. Which makes then that uh, winning the gold medal in the Olympics quite ordinary. Thousands of people are doing that. But here we're doing something quite unique. Another example would be, how would you feel or how would you think that someone would feel if they climbed Mount Everest? And you get up to the top. You look around and you're on top of the world. And you have thoughts about being on top of the world. Guess what? The guy who was on Mount Everest, he better get up there in the morning so they can use the afternoon to get down. And he's got a lot of work to do to get off that mountaintop. Hmm. Okay. So it's real, and there's a lot of real work involved with it, but the way he feels when he's finally gotten to the top, because most people who try to climb Mount Everest, they die on the way. Very few make it to the top, right? And here you are now with, uh, with some help and some guidance. I'll be your personal Sherpa on this expedition, and you are going to climb the mountain of your own mind. which is quite unusual, quite or un unusual, unordinary. Most people do not do that. So you're joining in a very unique group of people who are able to conquer their own mind. So if that's the case, then you want to be able to give yourself the kind of exhilaration and the kind of joy that you would give yourself by climbing a real Mount Everest or winning a real gold medal in the Olympics. 
Give yourself that uh, that ability to feel because you're in a clue, a group that's even more unique than that. <laughs> this is even more spectacular than that. This is absolutely the, the, the pinnacle of humanity. The very top that we could go to is to get your mind free, to get your mind free from uh, the hindrances and to live a life that's happy and joyful. And this is the practice that we do. And these these four things is right view, right sati, right effort, and right attitude. One and work and circle together around each other to bring about the sama samati, the area sama samati mind, the mind that is organized correctly the way that the clock is correctly organized when it's samadhi it functions correctly most human beings are a crowd inside they tell themselves to do something and then they say to themselves back again i don't want to do it you go brush your teeth i don't want to brush my teeth okay and so we are a crowd inside we have all of these rules and all of these orders and the rules and orders are often critical and then we respond to the criticism adversely and what we need is we need a moderator in there an adult in the room to turn this critical uh function of all of these rules and everything into nurturing so that we start to wisely nurture ourselves this wise nurturing then is the uh, wholesome thoughts that we have so that we begin to have one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought so that the wholesome thoughts become one by one as they occur one after another after another after another and you can begin to see them arise and pass away and arise and pass away everything flitters away and we can see that all from a particularly wholesome place and it's quite enjoyable. Just enjoy the show. What a marvelous show that we're in. And yet, when we are kids, we are told that, hey, man, you're an actor here. Get up on the stage and read your script. And so all of humanity, like Shakespeare, says all the world's a stage and everyone is an actor. And guess what? Not only is everyone an actor, they've got a script they're reading. And very few of us recognize, hey, man, you can throw that script down, you can put it on the floor, and you can walk off that stage and sit down in the audience, which is basically kind of empty, because everybody's up on stage, you see. And I can sit down in the audience, and I can enjoy the show. Yeah. This is the practice of Anapanasati. Meditation is standing on stage reading your script that has the page of meditation on it. <laughs> and so here we are reading our book, our script, saying you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to go sit on the floor, you got to close your eyes, you got to have your uh, folded cross-legged posture, all of those kind of rules and everything like that. It's just a script we read. And our time now is to figure out that, hey, we don't have to read that script anymore. We can set it down and enjoy the show. Do 
Give what yourself are... the reward that you've been waiting for. You have not <laughs> been giving yourself the rewards. It's time to reward yourself. No, Feel I've good. been rewarding myself. Trust me, I have 100%. Um, you ain't seen nothing yet. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, I guess seeing some of the fruits of this practice, um, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, sometimes I just have to fight the urge. Fight and feel that sad heart of, (laughs) of wanting to show other people or at least encourage direction in this way. Well, in our society, we are really, really way overly concerned about how we deal with others. This is a society, by the way. They talk about it that way. And the practice of Anapanasati is literally getting your own mind straightened out. And the way to do that, number one, is to get away from it all. And then number two, to get away from all of the stuff that you brought with you when you got away from it all. Okay, now that we've gotten the mind away from it all and we've gotten the mind cured of its spiritual disease of criticism. Now, when we come back into the world, we don't have to deal with the world the way that we've been dealing with it. Now we can deal with the world with the same joy that we were able to manufacture while we were in seclusion. And so we deal with the world and joy. This is when we say that we're in the world, but not of the world, no, not anymore. But we have to get out of the world in order to get away from the world, to get free from the world. And then now that we're free, we can come back and deal with the world from a sense of freedom. Mm-hmm. Not, not the way that we approached it the first time. When we approached it the first time, we were little kids and we jumped right in. Because everybody else did, and we were too ignorant to recognize, hey, man, I do not have to join that society. Now that you've gotten your mind cleaned out and you know what is what, you can recognize that's dangerous. (laughs) I don't think I'm going to jump into that. (laughs) Not going to join somebody's pity party because they're having a pity party and want me to join in. Just because misery loves company doesn't mean that I've got to be misery's company. So this is where we get off into the area of meta. Meta is being able to treat the world the way that you would treat the world if you were able to treat the world in the best possible way. Instead of treating the world the way the world has treated you. So we have to get the mind straightened out first. We have to get all the unwholesome stuff out. And when we get the mind to have one wholesome thought after another, after another, now we truly are on the middle path. Because we're not allowing the mind to go back into the hindrances of flogging or wanting some sensual desire. Okay. The mind is free from suffering. But everything's okay. When did you feel confident to teach? 
that was a process. It was a surprise when Aichan uh, Po and Bhikkhu Buddhadasa set me up. Hmm. Bhikkhu Buddhadasa, the first, the first talk that I ever gave was supposed to be a translation. And he says, we're now going to talk about the, uh, the Four Noble Truths, and he gives the first paragraph, and I tell him what he said in the first paragraph, and I look back to him, and he says, you take it from here. <laughs> All right. That was in 1984. Wow. And what we're doing here on the internet, that was um, uh, something that Achan Po had requested. Yeah. Because he couldn't get me to go to Chicago and he couldn't get me to go to Phuket. And he couldn't get me to go here, there, and yonder. And so he says, okay, well, let's do it on the internet then. Hey, I'd say it's working well. <laughs> so, yeah, we've been doing these um, interviews on uh, Skype for six years. Hmm. Said long, that's surprising. Okay. So in that six years, um, the message has remained the same, but the skills for delivering have improved. Hmm. New ways of talking, new ways of looking at it. In fact, um, Gladdening the mind was there all along, but now looking at it in the sense of wholesome and unwholesome thoughts and looking at it in the sense of critical versus nurturing thinking there are things that I've added along the way. Sure. But people respond to that. They can recognize, yeah, I have been really critical of myself and now it's time to nurture. Those are the kind of words that really seem to resonate with people. Well, yeah, I mean, this style of thinking in a sense is i'm sure it's just kind of being introduced to the west more now i mean in general that we've the internet has allowed for more communication between people mm -hmm. so yeah well i really enjoyed the talk tonight all right well are you going to call again yeah i've enjoyed this okay. All right. Like most things. I really well, appreciate your time answering my questions, sharing your knowledge. Well, good luck with your practice. May you have wholesome thoughts. <laughs> Thank you. Same to you. And and you can call in a, in a, about a week or so. That would be good. Okay. Okay, Gavin. Good to meet you. I'm glad you're on. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Good, I'm glad uh, I did as well. Thank you. Okay, we'll see you. Yeah.